This is Web3 Breakdowns. Web3 Breakdowns is a series of conversations exploring innovation in the decentralized internet. Each episode, we will focus on a different topic. We will cover NFT projects, crypto assets, blockchain-based protocols, and businesses being built with Web3 architecture. We will talk to founders, artists, investors, and influencers to understand this emerging ecosystem. Come join us down the rabbit hole. To find more episodes, transcripts, and a library of content to continue your learning, visit joincolossus.com. All opinions expressed by hosts and podcast guests are solely their own opinions. Hosts and podcast guests may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions. This is Matt Russell, and I'm back with Eric for another quarterly recap here. When we started this format, we thought it would be interesting to go back years from now and listen back to certain periods in time. Never did we think it'd be so interesting to go back and listen to our recap from just a few months ago. But as you can imagine, the tone is slightly different on this go around. We cover all the volatility, bad actors, shake up from the industry over the past three months and get Eric's thoughts on where we stand today, whether he's made any major changes to his framework and thoughts on, on the industry. Enjoy. Eric, we're back for round two. Exciting. This one's going to be a little bit different than round one. Yes. I thought the last quarterly recap was full of interesting things. I think this one has a much bigger list and a lot more interesting events that happened throughout the quarter. We're going to get to all of that, but I think it's helpful to start high level again. When you look at the first quarter, you had Bitcoin down single digit percents. S&P was down 5%. Ethereum was the worst performing, it was down 10%. Flash forward to the second quarter, Bitcoin down over 50%, Ethereum down over 60%, and the S&P and NASDAQ not performing well either. S&P down 16% and NASDAQ down 22%. But when you just at a high level look at the asset class and step back, is there anything that's happened here in the second quarter that caused you to have a major reversal in, in thought process? Is there anything that you used to believe that you no longer believe after the events of the second quarter? It's a bit of like story all this time that when people get access to uncollateralized leverage, bad things are going to happen. And so I think for some people that aren't as close to crypto, they're seeing you know a macro sell-off. You know, the consensus is, well, the Fed created a bubble by keeping interest rates artificially low for so long. Growth equity was up, you know, way higher at multiples it never should have been at. Crypto really just represents a risk asset at the tip of the bubble, and it's all unwinding. There's definitely that narrative, while true, like a lot of things, is there's a complex system. But here I think what's interesting is structurally, the second quarter of crypto is like 2008 plus long-term capital, plus like the 90s. It's just bringing a bunch of financial crises all together. But interestingly, with no governmental intervention as bailout. No, I wouldn't say anything has like radically changed. I think what the lesson from Q2 was that as we started the podcast and started interviewing people, I'm a fixed income guy. I'm dorky and I like market structure and credit and leverage. And to me, it always seems to be like the most boring thing to study, but the most interesting things are leverage and liquidity. When we started looking at crypto, I would split up into three things. You have like blockchain crypto, like the underlying technology part. You had DeFi, this idea of a new form of finance. And then you had NFTs and digital ownership. For most people, they actually follow that arc. They got into Bitcoin early and then DeFi summer happened, then NFT summer happened. And for me, I bought into it early because I was curious, but didn't have necessarily a strong view. I was very unimpressed with DeFi and if anything sketched out and thought it was kind of scammy by and large, but then I got completely hooked on the consumer aspect of NFTs and then came back to like, okay, this is the part that's interesting. As we were going through the leverage question, where does the yield come from? You got two answers, one which makes sense, one which was always a head scratcher. And now I think I have a little more clarity coming out of the second quarter. So the first was people are creating different trading venues. And this is a market structure question that does make a lot of sense to me. That if you think about being a fund manager and trading on 10 different exchanges in crypto, that can be an even bigger number. And every time you have to move assets because you're actually settling on T plus zero basis, meaning if I do a trade with you, I need to give you whatever I said that moment, you need to have those assets on hand. And this is 
goes back to an earlier example that Dan had on the show of Bitcoin's over here at 20,000 and it's over there at 19,000. Ideally, you want to buy it for 19,000, sell it for 20. The reason why that opportunity exists is because you actually need money in both places. You need the money in one side to do the trade, then you got to move it over here to sell it. And so that's inefficient. It's inefficient in traditional assets. So what ends up happening is funds take on counterparty risk through prime brokers to say like, look, I understand that you want to trade in these different places. I understand at a high level, the strategy that you're going to use. So I'm going to lend you credit. That's a form of debt. Sometimes they post collateral. Usually if they had to post full collateral, if it was over collateralized, that would make less sense. So it's an uncollateralized loan. And that makes sense. You're worried about the people making those loans, their ability to do good credit analysis, which is people's ability and willingness to pay you back. That for me is a form of credit that makes sense. The second form of credit that kind of was more shocking to me, because that can't be all of it, was that traders had a demand for leverage. This is why it's counterintuitive. I mentioned long-term capital management. It's a famous hedge fund that had the smartest people in the world at the time working on it. And essentially what they were doing is taking a low volatility asset class, meaning the price doesn't bounce around a lot, in this case, treasuries and futures, and levering it to as high as humanly possible because there was an ARB that they thought that they could maintain and that by being the smartest guys in the room, they could get a tremendous amount of capital to be the number one whale to do this trade so nobody else could do it and they could get all the profits. So typically when you see leverage blowups, it's people taking one form of asset and converting it to another. And it's usually based on historical volatility being low that they add leverage and jack it up. And it worked for a long time until it doesn't. And it blows up and there's an unwind. As this unwind started to happen, it kicked off with Luna. I think what we've come to find out was that a lot of that leverage may have been fraudulent or at least rehypothecated, meaning that in this case, some of the allegations, which I think we'll only find out as time passes in court, Three Arrows, the major hedge fund, blew up, but that it had gotten that kind of level of trust that maybe long-term capital management had gotten and had gone to lenders. And it's on the lenders to say, you know, show me the proof that you know you guys have the collateral here. And that either they were lied to and that Three Arrows misrepresented how many assets they actually had, or they were showing everyone the same pool of assets over and over again and saying, oh yeah, we don't have leverage on it. So I think there's still questions on how bad it is. But I think my instinct is some of the leverage was in the system makes sense. A significant portion of the leverage in the system didn't make sense. And it's unwinding, which honestly isn't the worst thing. There's a lot there. I want to get to all of it, but I think you hit on the event that started the dominoes and that was Luna. So maybe let's go back to Luna and what the underlying cause, what the catalyst was for that to fall and anything around that, which made it more specifically vulnerable. I'm always curious in terms of everybody knows when there's all this excess in the system, something causes it to pop. What is that event that causes it to pop? And is there anything that we've taken away from that? So maybe some additional details on the Luna event. Luna was an actual blockchain and it had a token, Luna. It was you know, a competitor to a thing like Ethereum. And the founder that's famous on Twitter was Do Kwon. There was another founder, I forget his, the, the name. Do Kwon was a little more memorable for his tweeting history, yes. Do's personality type is one that, I mean, that one's definitely another, like, I think maybe if we call this episode, it might be story as old as time. On Wall Street, there's people that make money and they're good people. And there's people that make money and they're assholes. If you make money or an asshole, society is just waiting for you to crash and burn. Doe was such a bully online and had got this fervor of this like religious cult-like leader. It did seem like it was kind of coming. <laughs> so anyways. To your point, it's not unlike what many people say about Dick Fold and Lehman and why they weren't one of the ones to be bailed out. Exactly. At the end of the day, there's people behind these things. Away from Doe's personality, just because I think this is interesting that the story Doe sold versus what it came into. The way I heard it was pitched, and I wasn't there in like the early seed days, was that the South Korean market was going to adapt to micropayments using on-chain that imagine you walk into our version of a 7-Eleven, you want to buy a soda, how would you do this? And we had kind of shifted from the narrative that Bitcoin was going to be a payment vehicle. It had kind of gone to gold. So there's the idea of a stable coin of something that's like worth a dollar or one one in this case, The idea was like, how could we kind of handle the payment system? They came up with a second token called UST Terra. There's three versions of stable coins. There's stable coins where the assets are held off chain. That would be like 
tether and, and circle. And those to me look a lot like a money market fund. You're telling people the blockchain is just a nav and what, like we'd run at Fidelity, we'd have a bunch of assets. We managed those with the financial crisis kind of started when a fund broke the buck and depegged. but you don't know what they are. We'll kind of give you updates as you need. And if you want your money, come and ask us. The second is on-chain, which is something like Maker, which is over-collateralized or some under-collateralized version of this, but they're saying the collateral is on-chain, come to us, give us a currency, and then we'll give you a stable coin against it. The third is Algo stable coin, which is just code for like, we don't have as much money as we're printing, which is fractional banking or Ponzi. It's a dangerous place to be because what you're saying is we're going to give out more tokens than we actually have available assets. On day one, everyone's thinking, rightfully so, like, well, what happens, Eric, if everyone asks for their money? But in an algorithmic stablecoin, definitionally, it's bad because there isn't as many dollars as they've created tokens to get that money back. If anyone ever asks for money, the example I give with like when I talk to people about liquidity of like what would happen if someone asked for your money is right now, as you're listening, if you own a house, what's the value of your house and how would you figure it out? And you probably go to Zillow or Redfin, or maybe you tell me that your neighbor just sold their house six months ago at this price and that's a good value. That's one price, not value, price. What if I told you you had to sell it in 30 minutes? Now, what's the price? Very different. Anyone who asks someone, money market fund, any type of bond, any type of bond, give me all my money back, it would be dangerous. Algorithmic stable coins, there are not enough assets backing it. This had been tried before and had blown up. Um, interestingly, I think Doe actually anonymously had tried one of these things and it had blown up. There was a lot of skeptics, but there was a lot of supporters of this. And as the ecosystem grew, this got very large. And that stable coin was 30 or 40 billion. The actual Luna token was 30 or 40 billion. And the idea was that the collateral they were using to backstop the tether was Luna, the network. If you think about Ethereum doing this, like Ethereum is a blockchain and it has a native token that used for gas and they're leveraging that up. So what they're saying is if you want your money back, you deposit UST you then would get Luna and then you would go on the market and you would sell Luna. And their thesis was that so long as there was belief in the Luna network, this arbitrage mechanism, if for some reason that it was worth more than a dollar, people would buy it and then convert it and get their Luna. If it was less than a dollar, sorry, they would sell it. If it was less than a dollar, they would buy it and convert it and that this ARB mechanism would work. And it got really large. I think what was most interesting on the timeline of what happened was in January, there was another DeFi protocol. I think it was Wonderland or one of these other ones that blew up and had exposure to Luna and Luna's peg started to wobble. They went out and raised a billion dollars and it got into high net worth people who had not been really crypto had like kind of called me and said, what do you think about this? So that's when I got smart about Luna was when people were asking me, should they do part of the deal? What I realized was that some of those deals that they got is kind of slimy. People had access to the deal, then selling it at a premium to other high net worth or kind of transferring the risk down the line. But basically what they're doing is trying to backstop themselves. So Luna raised about a billion dollars in January. And I think the names on that cap table were big, like Jump was on there. I think Three Arrows was on there. And that gave people a lot of confidence that, wow, this experiment, which is all these things, I think is the best way to think about it, has big backers. Were those backers already exposed to the name? I think most were. I don't know. If you look at the cap table, I think people have printed this. We can probably get you know who was added. I mean, back then, I think Jump was like, it seemed like they had more money than anyone and they were printing. People are talking about them printing billions of dollars a year in profit. They had just backed. I don't know if my timeline right, but they put 300 million into Wormhole that had gotten hacked. It seemed like there was big backers of Luna and this idea that there was an ecosystem that was actually having product market fit in another country, that had a different regulatory environment, that Doe was this, even though crass and mean person, that to some people, it's like what it took to be a revolutionary and topple the world's payment system. It's so easy now because people look back, oh, it's so obvious. I'm like, this is what people were doing. They were getting UST and then they were pledging it in an application that was on the Luna network called Anchor. And they were being paid between 19 and 20% after fees, call it 20%. So they're earning 20% on their UST to leave it there. And it said, I think you had to wait, like, I forget how many weeks, but like, if you wanted your money out, it went in easily. You had to wait to get it out. People are earning stable coin yields of, you know, 7%. And all of this was pitched as, well, the reason why there's so much yield in this market are the reasons we said earlier, but anchor was unusually high. What was happening and Luna was involved with it and Doe was involved. And the thought was like, they were trying to get product market fit. The best explanation or the kindest, I wouldn't say the best, is that a tech startup does customer acquisition. 
when you were getting in that Uber that first time, when you bought your first Amazon transaction, none of that was making money. Those Netflix videos we watch, which is like, but if they get to this network effect, someday they'll be able to get the price above. In this era of no hardcore valuations and thinking about these things as like venture-backed startups, the idea was, well, eventually they'll lower the interest rate, they'll have enough liquidity in their kind of treasury, and they'll be able to come back to a more reasonable level, but you're taking the risk of funding them in the early innings. Does the algorithmic stablecoin ever get to a point where there is an equal amount of dollars and the coin that has been printed? Is that the goal? I think it's possible. You know, on the theme of our show today, I guess, when the financial crash happened, people were upset that the Federal Reserve and the US Treasury stepped in and intervened. And kind of the genesis of Bitcoin was there shouldn't be this interventionist policy. But then every time you invent one of these new protocols, you're attempting to build a new monetary policy. Is it possible that they could eventually get to fully backed by slowly, like, you know, managing that the network value got so high and that they started to delever the coin? I mean, maybe, but the thing that was attracting everyone was the nosebleed yields. And how can you pay those yields if you don't have all this excess cash? Starting fractional banking from nothing is not easy. It only came out of the fact of like, obviously, it's a better use of capital and it's efficient, but it's not easy to start from nothing. Yeah, there's definitely a lesson learned there. I've been asking people, do you think algo stable coins need to exist? Is this experiment worth running? Or can we kind of say like, this probably should never exist because it just exposes too much risk inside a system? It seems to me that this shouldn't exist. What is the major case that it should exist? It would give you leverage against the ability to create like a new sovereign nation in a much more rapid way of like, obviously for the founders, creating money out of thin air sounds great. Like who wouldn't want to try to do that? Where does that trust come from? Like at the end of the day, this is what I think about almost all financial assets is like people can worry about dollars and cents and cash flows. But like the reason why the United States capital market system is the biggest in the world is because of the trust inside the system that if this is how it works. And anytime we've had a crisis, we usually regulate it and try to tighten it up even more. And we learn from our mistakes. I'm not a believer that regulation will stop crises in any way. Like we'll continue to have them. But if you look at money market regulation, it was a heavily regulated space before the financial crisis. Rule 2A7, minimal credit risk, what we could own, what we couldn't own. And yet still money market funds ended up buying really bad stuff that almost took down the financial system. After money market reform, it's even more regulated. This is kind of a pattern that the system goes through as a crisis occurs, then people add the regulation after the fact, and then someone finds an edge or a way to exploit some inefficiency in the system. Algo stable coins, just the concept of, hey, let's go launch a fund, but let's give ourselves some extra chips to play with and not count it is just kind of unheard of in traditional assets. I see this as like a fringe experiment and maybe they learn something from it, but not the product itself ever surviving. Yeah, there seems nothing stable about the experiment. It's interesting for it to be grouped in with something that has, by name, this sound of being lower risk. But anything that comes with a 20% or high teens yield, I think it's pretty obvious that there's risks associated with that. I want to get to the regulation point down the line, but continuing on the domino effects, the next thing that I had on my list was Celsius. And I don't know how much that relates to Luna, is separate, but related. But maybe you could talk about the contagion that happened post-Luna and some of the major events since then. I think Celsius being one major one on the list here. Celsius was what's called CFI, centralized finance. There's DeFi and CFI and CDFI. The idea behind CFI was retail investors would love to get these yields. So interest rates are zero. They're getting nothing at the bank. CDs are zero. Like There's no way for them to generate just interest on their savings. Could they get interest in these accounts? And the idea was that there's yield being generated in the space. And like any bank, or I call them kind of neo banks, this idea of net interest margin, which is essentially a bank is lending out money at one rate and then paying out depositors at another rate, the part in the middle they get to take. The thought was, could they stake their tokens? Could they do these yield farming tactics? Could they do the stuff? Could they lend to other prime brokers that needed capital and be the, the good part of the leverage in the system? And if they could, then they could generate yield and pay back their customers. Of the majors, there was Voyager, BlockFi, Nexo, and Celsius. 
as part of like my DeFi journey and that early part of like what's going on, Celsius always had this reputation of being a little bit more sketchy. BlockFi had a more pristine reputation, but Celsius had kind of a sketchier personality type. And there's always this thing of like FUD, fear, uncertainty, and doubt. And like, even before any of this happened, there was always something with Celsius. They lost it. And I don't even remember some animal name, DeFi protocol. And like, no, 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 we're fine. We're capitalized, whatever. And so there were headlines. I've never told this story before. A friend of mine said, we're meeting with, with Mashinsky. Alex Mashinsky is the founder and CEO of Celsius. We think it would be great for you to come join the meeting, ask questions. I was like, sure. Like, why not? So I go to the meeting and I kind of put back on my credit analysis PM hat and just asking questions about risk management and credit and lending. And it did not go well. You know, just a defensive character, you know, very angry about DCG and Coindesk and how they write bad articles about him. And it's all personal and that the world's against him. It was a very victimhood thing, like none of my fault. And he got so heated. It did remind me of some of the 08 characters. He said, I just saw that XYZ major financial firm invested in one of my competitors. Why wouldn't they invest in me? And I was like, Alex, is a really, let me just walk you through it. Can I share my screen? I said, Google Celsius risk, Celsius CFO. Because what's going to happen is someone's going to say this crypto thing, they want to do a deal. And that's going to go to a lawyer and compliance. And the first thing they're going to do is just do a news search. And the first news search that comes up is that your CFO was arrested in Israel for embezzlement of money and all these bad actions. And you're like losing the people that are supposed to be overseeing the system. These firms cannot take that risk just because it might be a good deal. I'm not saying the business is going under, but like the image is a big deal. That was my one Celsius story where I was like, this is definitely a guy pushing the limits. The platform itself allowed you to transfer assets, get the yield. And they had made loans to, uh, they had exposure to Luna, they had exposure to Three Arrows, but they had also done a lot of what now seems to be very poor record keeping. One of the funniest things I've seen, there was a lawsuit filed yesterday, which seems a bit ridiculous in uh, hindsight over this, by a very large trader who was claiming that Celsius, he was one of these DeFi yield farmers who was playing with some exotic strategies, which I never totally have been able to understand like what he was doing. But whatever he was doing, he was generating yield. And he went to Celsius and said, hey, do you want us to take some money and do it? And so Celsius allegedly just sent him several hundred million dollars, no contract, no diligence, had him manage the money and then pay out some of those shareholders. Well, now there's all these allegations. And basically it's just unwinding like, do you have any level of risk management? Did you have credit officers? Was there any process at all that like when money leaves, someone thought about it and said, hey, is this a good loan? Is this a bad loan? Are we keeping track of it? One of the funniest things I heard was that because of fear of regulation, they didn't want a paper trail, which I can't imagine someone just pressing a button and saying, yeah, let's send out a couple hundred million dollars. So I think Celsius collapsing and shutting down withdrawals in general, then just triggered a whole level of contagion kind of follow on here. I guess we'll go to three arrows, but then this was very 08. Like it's not typically risky assets that get you blown up because risky assets are risky. If you lose 100% of your venture capital investment, people aren't like, oh my God, what am I going to do? They're like, oh yeah, I kind of expected that. When your cash goes from $1 to 99 cents, it sends the shock of God through your system because you're like, oh my God, what if it's not there? And so with Celsius, the lunar breaking at first seemed contained. It was all of these players that had exposure to Three Arrows and Luna. And then when they shut off the withdrawals, then there was true runs on the neobanks where you couldn't get money out. And now everyone was concerned. Yeah, captured contagion well there. Just the amount of intersection between all these entities is wild. You mentioned Voyager before. I think it's particularly interesting. And help me understand, is Voyager a public entity? Why is their bankruptcy filing public? Is it the domicile in the US? And it's more, I understand why they would have to file it, but why haven't we seen it, I guess, from any of the other entities? Maybe it's that they haven't filed bankruptcy. Yeah, I think it actually, I was just checking. I think it is publicly traded because I saw them getting like delisted off some exchange. So I'm assuming it's a publicly traded company. I had never dealt with Voyager or, or had heard about it until after this. They just got kind of pulled into it. And because they have a bankruptcy filing, there's interesting details there. This is one of the things we're like, Although Twitter is like a great source of information, sometimes it can be like the worst source of information of like what's going on. But there was someone going through kind of the filing and showing that they had made, I don't know, I want to say a billion dollar loan. And essentially it looked 
kind of similar to a traditional unwind where unsecured creditors are going to get 80 cents on the dollar, which that's like an investment grade, good outcome. When something- yeah, I was going to say that's a pretty good outcome. Yeah. Now, I, I know that if you had your savings and you thought it was a bank, like that you could have been misled and there'll be all sorts of lawsuits about that. I really want people to be accountable. I know this is a sick, a naive, twisted idea. If you were getting some above market interest rate and assuming that you're taking no risk, unless you were like completely duped into it and the company used really aggressive tactics, I think people knew they were taking risks, thought this was a low probability. It ended up happening and happening across you know the marketplace. But that's why I think we're seeing a lot more in Voyager is because they were traded. So that's why their filings come out so quickly. And US space. Like I never even knew about chapter 15. I knew about 7, 11, and 13. I never got to 15. I didn't either. Um, and I, I three arrows filed 15, which I guess is like if an outside US entity wants to file and the American court's like, whoa, 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 none of that crazy court stuff that's not US based. It's a way to try to like cause an injunction of some sort. Uh, but I had not heard of 15 until recently. Yeah, I'm embarrassed to say it with a decent credit background that I wasn't familiar with it either. And it's actually, well, before we jump to three arrows, does anything in the CFI category exist still? Like, is that a layer that will still be around? Enter uh, Sam Bankman-Fried, FTX. And this is why I said earlier that, and this is something I do, I'll say kind of a positive on crypto because obviously it was a very negative quarter, but I want to get back to the bailout side. FTX originally loaned $250 million line of credit. And when I saw that headline, I started talking to them like, oh shit. And you're a credit guy and you're like, lines of credit do not come without strings attached. And I made a comment like, he just bought that company. And they're like, what are you talking about? I'm like, you just don't give a line of credit like that in this situation unless something bad's happening. Like, that's not when you want a line of credit. So that's clearly a hole. Um, and then rumors came out that he bought the company for $25 million and people lost their mind because BlockFi had had you know a billion-dollar valuation, then a $3 billion valuation, and that was $25 million. It's a much more complex deal than that. I think it's you know one of these ranging deals. I don't know the most recent numbers, but it's probably going to... If certain things happen, it's like a 500 to $750 million buyout. And it's not the $3 billion valuation from a year ago, but it's not 25 million bucks. What people don't understand is like you're taking on the hole in the balance sheet that when you have a liability asset mismatch, uh, you have a problem and you also have future lawsuits pending. So BlockFi seems like it's in great state now. Like it seems like their holes are pl- isn't financial advice, but just following the traditional disclaimers, but following the markets, it seems like FTX has kind of wrapped that one up. Celsius is doing something interesting, which on chain, it seems to, because people can track the on chain part of it, which I do think is the exciting part of leverage. Like if stuff was all on chain, you actually could, this is, it might sound provocative, but if all credit was on chain, I actually think you could prevent future boom bust credit crises. The fact is it will never happen because someone would be willing to pay a premium to get off chain leverage to hide their position. The idea of DeFi that was so mystical to me, one part of it was the on-chain transparency, but there's always going to be off-chain leverage competing against it. And so that's just going to be a risk that people have to be aware of. So Celsius has been paying all of its on-chain debt down. And so this is where like I, I think Twitter has it wrong, where they're like, oh, they're preparing to file for bankruptcy and they're just paying all their loans off first. I'm like, that is not how bankruptcy works. You have fraudulent conveyance. You've got a 90-day clawback. You can't just pay some creditors off because you're like, oh, the courts don't understand what the maker loan is. So I paid it off. I'm like, the court will quickly realize that you owed someone money. They don't care what it's called and you gave them cash. I find it interesting that they're paying down leverage like this. And that to me would suggest that it's trying to avoid a bankruptcy filing. I think Voyager did file and restructured as well. Probably more bankruptcies to happen, but it doesn't mean that they all have to file to get to the other side. It really comes down to like who gets to see the financials, the size of the balance sheet hole, and what type of equity recapitalization would they need to plug it. When you think about FTX's involvement here, there's no government for bailout. They seem to be uh, the knight in shining armor, at least for a few businesses. I'm asking you to step into their mindset, but is this a drive to capitalize on an opportunity? Or is this like, I need to save an entire asset class and someone needs to do it or else we're all at risk across the board? I mean, it's a good question. I don't know. I'm just speculating, but it's probably a little bit of both that when you have leverage in a system, it's not just leverage, but leverage is a great example that when you have a leverage unwind, just like when you have a leverage buildup, 
things that get finance that shouldn't get finance get financed because money's cheap. And then when you have a leverage unwind, you have this, you know, blowing out of the system. What can happen is, and you see an example of like credit tightening is it should take out the bad actors, financial markets, people, and maybe they're like less emotional, but when there's a leverage unwind, nobody wants to see people lose money, but you also are like, look, if there's bad actors, cleanse the system. Because the risk, and this is the point I was making about intervention of why I'm happier to see it go, and I'll get to kind of like maybe SPS perspective, or at least mine, is that when the financial crash happened and the Fed stepped in, for the past 10 years, and we're still in this state, even though people talk about how like young the investment group is, and they haven't seen this, they haven't seen that, no one from the 1970s believed the Federal Reserve would ever do what it did in 08 from an interventionist policy. The markets train reaction to every asset class being a Fed reserve watcher of as long as interest rates stay low, then apparently SaaS companies can trade at like a hundred times sales. And like, that's rational if this is the cost of capital and whatever language people put around it. And the idea was that the Fed has this put on the market that when traditional prices fall, they could intervene and they can make, whoa, 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 we don't like recessions. We don't like stock markets falling. That's not good. That makes people sad. So we're going to step in and wipe away your tears. The thing I like about crypto, one of the things I do is like, there is no interventionist policy. If you leverage yourself up, you borrowed money and then you put it in Celsius and it blew up, it's gone. There's no one to say, oh, this isn't fair. Like what happened? That was the issue of if you were levered up to your eyeballs in 08 and you own five homes and a job for 50 grand, you got bailed out. The government said, listen, we're going to come in and we're going to take care of these homes or lower interest rates. The problem with a bailout is like, there's someone who for no fault of their own got crushed by big, you know, financial services firms, you know, risky decisions. And so it's just a really hard societal decision of what to do. The notion that it's not here to me would take away the politics of it. I'm wondering what it says about the asset class. When people ask me like how crypto is doing, there's a lot of trade five people like dancing on crypto graves of like, I told you stupid. I didn't make any money. Like blah, blah, blah. It's all dumb. There's a lot of truth to that. There's a lot of scams, a lot of dumb things. It's being washed out. But how is the asset class performing relative to the other asset classes in light of there being like no possible plan of anyone stepping in to solve any of this? I'm surprised to the downside. Like the downside of crypto is whatever it is. There's no, I don't have a concern of what happens when the Fed stops buying mortgages? What happens when the Fed stops buying, you know, high quality debt? What if they change their balance sheet position? Are you sure what happens when they unwind that thing? No one is. The entire market is. And now granted, I'm not for like a crypto decorrelating from the markets for a long time, but there is something fascinating to watch. If this level of credit stress had happened inside the big system, I went from, is this a Lehman moment to be like, when Luna first happened, maybe this is one of the things I got wrong was I was impressed at how quickly it was, it felt contained because I'm like, well, if this stuff is going to unwind, it's going to unwind now. It took longer than expected. And this gets to, we'll end up in three arrows of like, what maybe that delay mechanism was might've been fraud, but now, if you look at it with the three arrows, you have like, imagine Bernie Madoff ran long-term capital management and Lehman was his prime broker. That's the level of kind of assault that the system is undergoing. And I'm impressed that it has it all collapsed even harsher, to be honest. I'm still going to screenshot the tweets where you said it was contained immediately after Luna, just to make sure we have those on file. Let's jump to three arrows. And I guess the hedge fund space, the investor space, how much of that was their own doing versus you know, the contagion falling to the investors as well? I think it obviously, just looking at the asset class performance, every single crypto fund is taking on a big chunk of pain. Talk a little bit about the three arrow situation and what makes that one particularly unique. Yeah. So three arrows were two, I think they were like high school friends, Zusu and Kyle Davies started this fund early. I would say as thought leaders in the space, people like respected them. They were kind of considered two of the smartest guys in the room, big Twitter presence, talking about the space and trading and macro and kind of views on cycles. And people were definitely enamored with them as well as the asset growth. And what was interesting about it is their fund, which I think reached a peak of like 13 billion or was like one of the largest funds at one point, I think by and large, it was not considered outside capital. So the belief was that this was a proprietary capital fund, which is even better because you're like, wow, you're not taking other people's money. You're managing your own risk and you're so well respected. And they were given a tremendous amount of credit from the different counterparties. I think what we're learning is 
at least what I'm hearing is that some of the stuff shown to the credit counterparties that was given was falsified or potentially, and you can only say so much, this is just opinion and speculation of what people are talking about. Perhaps what they were being shown wasn't accurate and that the amount of collateral being pledged on the three arrow side wasn't as great as people thought. Like there was a rumor that people had billions of dollars of lines to them. They were asked to post a small amount of collateral and suddenly they couldn't. One of the thoughts is that the fund was levered, levered long in a bull market, did really, really well. Then when it started to correct, instead of you know locking in the gains and kind of hedging their downside and being happy to play another day, they just levered even more and went and got more leverage, hoping that, okay, we just lost a billion dollars if we lever ourselves further. But what you're really doing is just stretching that elastic band. And when that snaps, it's going to hurt. So the fear is that when they were getting that leverage at some point, they started to lever themselves beyond what the assets they were sharing with the creditors, which is really what caused, because when it first unwound, the thing that we thought or the market thought was you could see large trades on the exchanges of just huge liquidations, a lesson learned of kind of the on-chain data. It was believed that like, okay, Luna had hurt people more than we thought. And that with the price falling, so then you have macro tipping over, you've got stocks down, everything's falling. Now what the risk is, is that Luna might've been like the tip that popped it, but that as the price falls, you have on-chain liquidations where like, if the price goes below this, you get blown out. And so what you need to do is sell assets, like healthy assets to go post more collateral, which causes this vicious feedback loop. We saw these like really big trades going off and people kind of assumed it was the hedge funds, maybe three arrows, maybe another large hedge fund trying to like protect their positions. I think now in hindsight, really what was happening was some of these centralized finance players that were smart and did have some level of risk management, they were the ones that at least had to have known first. I'm not trying to place blame on who's at fault. There's a lot of things that went wrong here. But if you lent money to them, you were the closest person to knowing. You, you had the ability to say, okay, for a billion dollars, like I mean, you know credit. This is the terms and covenants and I'll get. And you can do credit overview and due diligence. So if anyone knew something was wrong, it had to be them. Posting a margin call would definitely trigger it. And so now in hindsight, those exchanges, although the market thought it was a three hour selling, were definitely the, not the exchanges, sorry, the centralized finance, like their creditors being like, we need to blow out of this immediately because I won't name the name, but it's in the Wall Street Journal. But when Bill Huang blew up, there was like four banks that were stuck with a lot of stuff. They knew the night before that this was bad news and it was going to break. And sometimes you'll hear about these deals of like, look, if we do this to the market all at once, like we should probably for market structure, whatever, do this in chunks. But you also know whoever goes first gets the best price. I think one bank front ran everyone and the other three were left holding the bag. So actually what was happening was these C5 players found out something was wrong, took whatever call they had and liquidated it immediately. That is what really triggered the cascade at this time. Yeah, there's something interesting there. You brought up the point about four banks being involved. I can remember myself having a situation in December of 15 where a fund had a billion dollars worth of energy credit. And this was when everything was cratering and they needed to offload it overnight. And we were one of the banks. It was like four people in a room talking about this. And there was like a very specific process where we had to call the Fed. We had to do a deep analysis. It was like a very baby version of margin call where I spent my night in the office thinking about what could potentially happen and how it would hit the screens. But in a less mature market with a lot less regulation and overview, these things get yanked and there's not a process to it. Everything just moves incredibly fast. So that makes sense. I guess it all comes back to, again, like leverage. I mean, when everybody's making money, lending standards just get easier and easier and easier until everything reverses. But when you think about the leverage in the system, it was obviously a big driver of what made the market rise to where it was and obviously fall from there. Should the expectations now be level set that this system shouldn't have this much leverage. Therefore, the upside cases should be substantially lower versus what we were looking at before. And it's a million dollar question. But how do you think about that in terms of where we were last year? And if those were just completely irrational prices that we won't see for a very, very long time from now, because it was mostly driven by leverage? I don't know the answer. I think that cycles are good for innovation, creative destruction, speed, where it's good for 
people to take risk and push ideas and even some of the worst ideas up in that area where like the tail at the last breaths of a bull market, there's a chance of some harebrained idea. Most of them don't do well, but maybe something there gets funded in the next cycle. There's a good reason for the downturn to wipe all that out and replace. I'm just a believer that part of capitalism is going to be cyclical nature of the markets. It's a complex system where the market is going to overshoot and then undershoot. And that's just how you're going to continually have economic cycles. I think the notion that you can intervene and try to like stop it is just the worst idea. I think there are times where you need to intervene tactically, but get the hell out as fast as possible. Like you do not want to be interventionist for the period of time we have in. Or to your point on leverage, I think what leverage does is if you think about like a wave, like an audio signal, or like leverage is just magnifying the, like the amplitude, like the highs are high, the lows are lower. And so again, it's like, where should you use that leverage? Leverage allowed crypto to get a bigger spotlight than it probably deserved from like a market cap side. And the fall will probably be greater than it deserved. And the question I've asked myself is, it always ends up being like time horizon too. Of Are you thinking like, is this how it's going to affect the market in two minutes, two years, 20 years? Like, what are you thinking about? And so that's why it's like, for my time horizon, I think that there's just a lot of interesting things that are happening here that are going to impact over the long term. And I don't know what all of them are, but I know that being involved in the system and watching them and monitoring changes and seeing these experiments will help kind of lead to that potential opportunity. If you're trading, totally different question. If the leverage wasn't in the system, would it have gotten this many people to try and play with things? That example of if crypto just stopped at DeFi and never had that, I mean, NFTs were issued in like 2017, but just time moment, people's attention wasn't there. If people had never played with like digital ownership, we might not get like token gaming. Like I love this guy. Uh, I just saw on Twitter. I don't know if you saw this, but he was talking about the Solana phone. Solana is issuing a phone and everyone's like, oh, it's so stupid. I won't even do the guy's that we'll like put in the show notes. She did a great video thing of like a phone, stupid capex, blah, blah, blah. They can't do it. Like, this is so dumb. Crypto people are dumb. And he gave this example of the fire phone, which is like a great business story of like Bezos. And like, I remember it, I guess I forgot how young people are that like, they don't remember that Amazon tried to build a phone. I actually remember it from a management thing separately, but anyways, there's a fire phone. And what he was saying, have you used something called Alexa? Because Alexa was the Siri inside the fire phone. So the phone didn't work, but it was a really hard problem. And taking on a hard problem gives the innovator a chance to solve other things. It is the difficulty of the problem where the innovation comes from. So by just trying to tackle something hard and be like, could we do this? You start to solve all these other things. It's unsettling to people who have never built before because they're like, I don't believe you. If you've ever built something, I can tell you what's going to happen is just going to be like messy and disgusting and hard and brutal. And you're going to be so goddamn angry about one part of it. You're going to be like, I just need to fix this thing. That ends up being the thing. Even though you set down this other path, it's this other problem you had to solve, like keep making that forward progress. It just goes back to the crypto side of like, I think they're solving interesting problems. So my long-term view is that I think that the leverage in the system and the explosiveness and the style of it, of how like stable coins blowing up, hedge funds, it gets to some basic regulatory stuff. Fraud, malfeasance, lying, retail. I don't know how you don't think they're going to use this. If you were worried about regulation before, this will definitely change the regulatory landscape. But again, like I'm not one of those people that thinks like, no, this should all be an unregulated market. Like That's not good for adoption of people getting involved. I wonder if leverage helped the system get attention, but I also think leverage led to a lot of damage that really hurt the trust of a lot of people understanding the space. And people that might still be excited about it long-term are now more worried than they were before of like, well, what's the right way to get exposure to this? Yeah, that feels like an appropriate nuanced view. What you were mentioning there about the potential technology that can come out of this and people you know, the talent that is focused on solving hard problems. A podcast we had on Invest Like the Best, The Growth Without Goals. This guy, Ken Stanley, talks a lot about that, where you don't know exactly what's going to come from it. If you're set off to solve these interesting problems and you're doing interesting things all the time, usually something follows that. I think you hit it a little bit there on the regulatory side. I'll be curious to see if you have institutional funds. You know, I think of stress players looking at this opportunity set right now, I'm very interested to see how many of them actually look at this as an opportunity to get involved. And anything that adds more of the establishment into the space, obviously, you're going to see some of these things shake out where you might not have as many corporate NFT projects or we'll be thinking about them a little bit differently. But at the same time, you have Fidelity added Bitcoin into 401ks. 
we have Shopify doing token gated commerce. There still does seem to be a push from the, I'll call it the establishment, the incumbent industries. How, how do you feel about that wave? It's going to be a lagged effect if you see that slowdown. Some of these announcements that are coming out were probably being worked on last year. In your sense of the industry and where we are, are you still seeing you know, as much interest in terms of pushing into the space from more mature players who I would think would add some credibility and benefit in the longer term? I think institutions, one thing they get right, they might struggle with innovation and fast pace, but they do have long-term views of like, could this be disruptive? Would this hurt me? And what would it do? And so eventually they kind of adopt it and they benefited from the experiments. They're like, we're not going to go waste our time on that harebrained idea. You go take that risk. And if we like it, we'll adopt it. So I still think that there's interest there. I mean, there's a cliche of, oh, bear markets are great because it's for builders. What that really means is I don't like explaining Ohm. Ohm was this thing that people asked me about that I spent like a day or two banging my head against the wall trying to figure out and I couldn't figure it out. And it was basically a very similar algorithmic. You lend us your money. We'll pay you some stupid interest rate. And people are doing it. And they're telling me I made so much money on DeFi. And like, I just couldn't figure it out. And I felt dumb, like really dumb. Whereas like, to me, this is the part that I don't like selling stuff or defending stuff. But NFTs were so simple to me. People can figure this out. I don't consider myself like an expert in anything. We were trained in credit. Like we understand how this stuff works. I showed it to other credit people. I'm like, look at this website. I don't understand. But there was like reputable people. And then what you have to do is answer like, what do you think of bonding and ohm? Is this the next form of finance? Interesting experiment. I can't explain how it works. And you feel like a dope. And there's just so many experiments going on at the same time. And I think the bear market and the purge just leads to like, I was blown away by um, Alex Danko's podcast. Like I'm obsessed now. I mean, I always thought about this, restraining something or, or having a constraint, like building optimizations. I just think about the world through optimization problems for some reason now. That constraint's a good thing. When capital is unconstrained, when database is unconstrained, you get really shitty code. You get like, well, I can just type forever. And when you can build anything. So the positive I said, what ends up on the peak is like maybe some crazy idea that shouldn't get funded is worth it. But the downside is you do fund a bunch of dumbass stuff. And on the downside, the problem is there's a lot of good ideas that won't get funded and won't get the chance. But the ones that do, this is why people like the vintage of companies started now through this market is Jesus, like what gauntlet did they have to run through, right? The constraint point is made over and over again, 144 characters in a tweet. So many different things in terms of fitting on a page. That was an excellent episode, Token Gate of Commerce. On top of that, I think there's a lot to be said about the cycle and opportunity from here. On the regulatory front, it's something that I haven't followed much at all. I assume they are all watching closely and there's a lot of noise, but where do we stand now relative to where we were a few months ago? I think the major headline I saw was related to the Bitcoin ETF. There's two things that I think are relevant, specifically with the SEC. There's enforcement by action, like filing a lawsuit and suing someone. And then there's like, hey, what's proper regulation? And the argument in crypto has been that this has all been enforcement by action. There's been no, hey, guys, come in, safe harbor. The Hester Purse interview we did on Web3 Breakdowns kind of gets into this. Of like Her view is like, if you don't know the rules of the road, people are going to move to other jurisdictions to be like, I just don't understand how this is going to work here. And I think that's a problem for sure. Like there is no jurisdiction of like how we should do this. The SEC has been focused on trying to, they brought a case against BlockFi, which people were upset about at first because it was a huge number, $100 million. And what the SEC was saying is that they had misrepresented where the assets were going. They were going to uncollateralized loans, that they weren't separated, custody from interest rates. Like it wasn't bad. Even if they did that settlement, I just wish they had said like, okay, guys, Instead of having to like rely on precedent, this is the way to handle this. And that would have brought more people to the table. Like Celsius couldn't have complied with that regulation. That would have been great of we learned our lesson here. What ramification has it? Does it have? And instead, it's like kind of a whack-a-mole, bad actor, headline scalp thing, which it's part of being a regulator, but it shouldn't be your only tool. You've got other tools. I have a lot of respect and empathy because I wouldn't want to be the regulator. I don't know how you try to protect systems or the version of protection. I did like Hester's idea of a lifeguard, not a parent. It's not your parent who's going to jump in and protect you. It's a lifeguard at the beach. It's just like, look, is there a shark in the water? Are the waves too high? But yeah, you can drown. Like everyone, there's a sign. You could drown. I can't save all of you. If there's some crazy risk, then we'll step in. And the other thing has been on the ETF. 
on the ETF, basically, if you read the language, there's a legal uh, point that's coming out of it. They approved the futures ETF and they denied the spot ETF. The language has been about the exchange. So again, more speculation, but people believe that Chair Gensler wants the SEC to be given legal oversight over every crypto exchange, like the New York Stock Exchange and you know NASDAQ, like they would be given oversight rights, which they don't have right now because the exchange is a crypto exchange trading non-securities. They don't call them unregistered non-securities. And this is why he's using these words. These words are, are not chosen at random. When he says most of the things they're trading are securities, what he's really saying is these should be registered securities. The SEC should have oversight. All these things should be filing with us and give us ultimate control over crypto. One major confusing point has been on Bitcoin specifically has been deemed not a security. So that fell right away and regulated by as a commodity by the CFTC. So that first argument, it's not a security doesn't work. So the only thing that he's left is to say that there's he's not comfortable with the liquidity or market manipulation of the exchanges that are trading Bitcoin. Like what's the spot price of Bitcoin? It's a stretch just based on the size and liquidity of the market. You know markets that I know markets that aren't even exchange traded that quote NAVs every day. There's a lot of bonds that if you can quote a price on those, you can quote a price on Bitcoin a hell of a lot closer, right? So there's just a belief that that's kind of like the sticking point that is, and now they're going to go to court. I don't know if the if Coinbase sued, DCD definitely sued. So GBTC, Grayscale product that's trading. Um, they had to use these antiquated old forms of funds that we haven't seen in years, they've got severe limitations. So in this case, it can buy Bitcoin, but it can't be redeemed out. So there's an arbitrage opportunity. This is actually how some of those CFI guys lost money the first time and how Three Arrows allegedly, one of the rumors of Three Arrows, big levered trade. So, but GBTC used to trade on a premium. So what you would do, so if you bought Bitcoin, you could like go deliver to them, they give you this premium asset, and then six months later, you could sell it. So it was like this ARB which is kind of silly it existed, but the thought was like retail couldn't get direct exposure to the underlying currency, so it should trade special, which in, in market terms means like there's doesn't make sense, but there's kind of a, some sort of friction in the market that should trade special. Anything that's ever traded special, that specialness better stay around because it went away. So the premium started to decrease because people are doing this trade over and over again, and then it traded at a discount. And then at first people were like, oh, it's probably going to tighten back up, and it didn't. And then the discount got bigger and bigger and bigger. I don't know where it is today, but it's significant. Like contango commodity curves. Right now, if you buy a GBTC, it's at a huge discount. And you'd be like, well, that's great. They have all this Bitcoin. They do. But what would be the unlocking mechanism to get that price back to where it should be would be GBTC being unlocked via being approved as an ETF. So a trade allegedly that was happening at Three Arrows was they were taking massive amounts of leverage, buying GBTC on the approval or the thought that eventually the gap would be closed by the market. And this is just a great example of the market can stay irrational longer than you can say solvent. I mean, it's not even that irrational, really. It's like, who thought the SEC was going to approve this thing? That's like an FDA drug trade, you know, where you're betting on the approval. Right. It could work. But would you use leverage on like a stage two or something? I don't, or anytime. You would never use leverage in biotechs. There are options in and of themselves. It's like you get all the volatility there. Yeah. You know, the Wall Street Journal just published an op-ed about this of like, look, this is an abuse of power. This case might have some legs. So DCG is suing. I think Coinbase may be suing along the same lines too for approval. I'm not sure on that one, but to like kind of get the SEC in court to say, is this a fair use of your power? They have broad sweeping rights when it comes to securities. So you're in this weird space where like crypto people are saying they're not securities because they're trying to avoid this regulatory capture, which actually leads to worse kind of fraud and potential issues than having more regulatory clarity. If they're bringing them to court, these things can go on for a while, kind of kicks the can down the road in some ways. Is there any event on the horizon that actually you can look at the calendar and say, this is a major decision that's coming at this point in time, or is it mostly related to these cases that have a indefinite future? There's one calendar that people follow. There's someone from Bloomberg who posts it where basically the SEC isn't even saying yes. They're saying, we're not going to say no. They have a period of time where they can sit on something and Congress this is part of it says you guys have to give an answer because you can imagine if a regulator could just sit on it and never respond, that would be like a really safe political path to go. Like, we just don't have time. We're busy. 
<laughs> um, so the way it works is I think they have a period of like X amount of, I forget what it is, 18 months or something where I don't know the number, but they're given an approval and they have to respond. And then a non-response is like, if you didn't say no, it's like, yes to us. And then, you know, you have the launch of a fund. I think that people will continue to watch those. And I've wondered if someone would register an exchange. I mean, I'm sure someone's thought about this, but like, why not just go be like, hey, you want to like, obviously the Bitcoin ETF is an amazing opportunity. Go try to spit up an exchange, register it, try to go through the process and be like, hey, we'll take monopoly status on the SEC approved. You can only trade our Bitcoin, which is like, think about how ridiculous that is of like what we're doing. The regulator is saying, I have to be registered. If I become the only registered exchange, then you have to trade through me for this product to work. I don't know. The regulatory story is interesting because to your point, I think there's a lot of people that push back on it, but you see what happens to a system when there is no regulation. Unfortunately, there needs to be a referee or a lifeguard or however we want to phrase it in order to keep things in order. It's a sandbox. And so it's fun to have a space to play. Like imagine in this analogy, imagine just an aggressive beach with a bunch of surfers that are really into it. And you're like, this is great. And sometimes someone gets hurt or whatever. And the group kind of self-regulates, watches out for itself. There are times where it's like very analogous, where there's a, a guy on Twitter, Davis, who had called, I don't know how he did it, but he had thought Celsius was giving money to this trader. I don't know how he knew it, but he had some sort of tell on it early. It's kind of cool that there's that self-regulating side of it. But that only gets you so far. If you're going to have the general population start walking by and looking at it, and there's going to be more and more acceptance or adoption or playing with this stuff, when it comes to money, there's definitely going to have to be some level of regulation. I think the risk is that we got ourselves into a position where people were so mad or dismissive of crypto that they have their head in the sand. But like, well, because like, think about it if it's all fake and all going to zero, why do you need to waste your time on it? Like, I think about this a lot of people, people that are really mad about crypto. Like, if it's going to zero, the good news, it will go to, you're so confident it will, it will all disappear. Like, don't worry. But I think that what upsets people, rightfully so, is fraud, malfeasance, scamming, people feeling like they were, you know, that, that makes the beach an unsafe place. And now, now it's gone too far. Is the beach going to be abandoned and people are never going to come again? I don't think so. I think that what ends up happening is like, look, we got to have some rules for the role. And I think that inside of it, some of the biggest leaders in the space understand that. Like, this is not how you can present yourself to the outside world. Yeah, I like the lifeguard analogy. I was thinking of a pickup basketball game where if you play for 20 bucks, it's okay. If you play for 2 million, you probably want a referee there, not calling your own fouls, unless you're the one who's very confident that regardless of the circumstances, you can win. It's a great point. This is one of the conflicts I see, even with some of the best stuff in trade and DeFi, trying to put stuff on software is a great experiment because it causes all of these other things to happen. If we were building the bond market today, we would not do this. People don't understand that if we were going to trade a hundred million of treasuries, I'd call you on the phone and be like, Hey, how's it going, Matt? Let me think about blah, 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 blah. And then you'd talk and then I would talk and then you'd be like, okay, I need to do this. So how much do you have? Well, I've got this. I've got this QSIP. We talk for a while. Then we agree on some sort of transaction. You say the word done. I say done. We literally say the word done. Now we have a hundred million dollar transaction. That might seem magical. You create a ticket in your operating, your management system. I create one in my management system. That goes to an execution management system, which then goes to different backends, ticking and tying. Then it's got to go to DTC. Then we wait two days to see if it worked. Then inevitably you call me and you're like, you know, I sold you 100. Yeah, I only had it was like long 75. Can we redo the trade for 25? There's like 10 people from back office. The whole thing is archaic and insane. And it's multiple trillions of like, it's insane. If you were going to do that today, you would totally use some sort of centralized ledger where we weren't all ticking and tying every damn trade and we would have much better settlement terms. But I would never have been exposed to that if someone didn't try to replace a market maker with a piece of software. Is an automated market maker better than hedge high frequency trading funds extracting billions of dollars from equity trades and no one actually understanding that the money is going this way? I don't know. It seems unlikely. But there's a probability that maybe it is, or maybe it makes parts of it. But the experimentation in that space has led to a lot of really interesting insights. If people don't try those things and they're not willing to experiment, then, you know, and that's like the difference to me is, I don't know anyone who would say this. This may be the one non-controversial thing. I don't like scammers and fraud. And it's really bad, really bad. But I'm willing to tolerate, if I was given the choice of no innovation and no one trying things, 
you got to have a tent to protect people to try. And sometimes you're going to look foolish and wrong for giving those people a shot or a tent that there's a bunch of bad guys in there. There's also people trying to do stuff. I'm always going to go in the tent with the bad guys. It's where all the action is. It's where all the fun is. It's where all the, like the new stuff happens. And it's hard when the market's up and people are like, oh, that's, that might be interesting. And now it's like considered a, a negative connotation. You have to remember, like, what are you in it for? This is another thing too. What do you think is the first thing that happens in a down market? The scammers and the fraudsters move on to the next thing. That's a bit of a refreshing thing of like, all right, let's see who's left. And the people that are left are like, you get to suddenly be like, oh, the room's a lot less stuffy. I can actually talk to people. I'm not being yelled at by like the lunatics or the Ohm Dow people. I'm just like talking to other people being like, what are you working on? What are you building? A little quiet isn't the worst thing. No, I think it's a good point. It shakes the trees. I normally would say weak branches, but there's got to be some term for fraudulent branches. Cut the weeds out. We covered most of the events of the quarter, which was volatility, I would say. If anything, a lot of negative stuff that was hard to weather. But in terms of the positive side of things, I think you've alluded to what good can come out of it. But what else have you experienced, whether it's talking with people, collaborating, ideas? I know you went to NFT NYC. What was the general mood and any optimism that you can provide just from being on the ground in the past few months? So I went to NFT and I see, but I didn't actually go to the conference. I think that's like what most people are going to do. That's what cool people do when they go to events. It's like, yeah, I was there, but I was in the VIP section the whole time. So no, no, trust me, no VIP for me, but they sold a lot of tickets and they bring a lot of people. So it's just like, well, everyone's going to be in the city at the same time. That's what's really helpful. Ape Fest was the big event. It was a four night event that was capped off with Eminem and Snoop Dogg performing, which is pretty wild. Madonna performed at another event. I think that the notion of kind of proof of ownership of being in a club, like this virtual group of people, that part has never been stronger in the sense of the in real life activity for people of they've met online, they've, they've come together with some common interest. It was the Alex thing where Alex Danko is saying like community is like the most abused word. It really gets kind of just been co-opted, which is fine. So I apologize for using it in advance, but what happens is that I constantly see communities forming and I have my whole life in our professional lives. You say, I worked at Goldman. I went to Princeton. I grew up in Westchester, like these like very privileged lives that people are like, I did this, I did this, but you can be like, Oh, I played on like the Stoughton baseball team. I remember I was in California and someone said, where are you from? And I said, I'm from Boston. And he said, have you ever heard of Stoughton? No one's heard of my tech. Like that was just crazy. And I was immediately like, who is it? You feel like you're part of something. People identify with things. I'm a value investor. I'm a growth investor. This identity thing has always been an issue for people, not issue, but like a tangible thing. And like with NFT communities, you have this like emergent behavior and it's changing. The one that I was most involved in was Board Apes. And I got, I mean, I bought and sold other stuff and traded and was able to do well in the space, more from an investment market standpoint. But the Board Ape one was at that time of life, trying to understand this crypto space with other people that were very much like willing to learn. But like when you went, the vibe was just completely different. The board ape vibe is like, I don't want to offend people, but like a lot of pot smoking into a certain type of music. I felt out of place wherever I go, but I kind of thought it was fun. Not everyone was that, but like, that's kind of the vibe. I thought you would have went with their specify the music and say into a certain type of recreational drug, but I like that you flip flop that. <laughs> The Moonbirds one felt very hipster tech thing. But what was so fascinating to me is they have this like digital identity online that people talk to each other. It's fun to own lots of ones to go to the different things. These people have come together and formed this bizarre bond over a digital asset. And I find it fascinating. I am still absolutely fascinated by the size and scale of it. I left ApeFest thinking... I would say that it seems extremely likely that this thing will be bigger than Coachella, Lollapalooza. This will be how concerts happen. There'll be tokenized, this gets to the token gating stuff, which I'm a huge fan of, that allows access to people like Token Proof, the company funds who's going to come on, talks about unbelievable app. There was no ticket. I showed up, I scanned, 
I walked in. It was just really a cool process. So I would say the takeaway was the market wasn't great. So more consolidation. But again, the people that were there were like excited to be there and still part of something. The events were crazy. Like there was just so many more events. Everything was token gated. To go somewhere, you had to be part of something. So there's just a ton of token gated events that were really cool to experience and see the groups kind of forming in their own special ways. Even the place they picked or the food that they served was like very specific to the different cultures. That was interesting. I think Doodles, that was one of the groups that kind of probably won NFT NYC. They announced they had a crazy party. I think they announced Pharrell was like getting involved with them. They got an investment from Ohanian. When that happened, that was like blowing up people's telegrams. I spent a lot of time talking to trading firms, OTC desks, custody, trying to figure out like what's going on on the trading side a little bit more, getting deeper into there. And you could tell that like, look, it's a stress system. People are working through it, but people were still taking calls. They were taking meetings. In a way, we were not taking calls and not taking meetings. That was probably a positive sign. Here's to hoping third quarter is better than the second quarter. Nonetheless, another good quarterly breakdown. Enjoyed it. Any other closing thoughts? If this quarter, I'm not going to like eat my hat or something, but like if we do this next quarter and we have nearly as much of, oh, did you know this happened? This happened. I'm going to be, I'm hoping for a quiet third quarter relative to the second. We're eight days into this. This is July 8th. So we, uh, <laughs> so far, we're so good. <laughs> yeah. Fingers crossed. Awesome. Well, thanks again, Eric. Appreciate the time. Always fun. Thank you for having me. To find more episodes of Breakdowns or to sign up for our weekly summary, check out joincolossus.com. That's J-O-I-N-C-O-L-O-S-S-U-S dot com. 